Thanks so much, band. And uh, it's good to lift our eyes. I couldn't also help but my eyes go to Banjo Man with a baby on the back, which really is amazing. Well done, Peter. I don't think I've ever seen something like that, but it's tremendous. Good morning, everyone. Good to be with you this morning here. And uh, recalling that it was this uh, Sunday last year that we had Move Sunday. Not all of us were uh, around at that time, but previously we were gathering down at the Rickshaw Theater. And on that Sunday, we, uh, we gathered at the Rickshaw. There's a few pictures here just to remind ourselves. The Rickshaw was amazing, very different, very different. Black walls and, you know, mommy, why are my shoes sticking to the, the ground? That's just stale beer, sweetheart. And what's, what's that smell? That's just leftover weed from last night. And so there's a lot of benefits that came with uh, the place, but loved being, really loved being there um, for as long as we were. And so we started there, and we, we reminded ourselves that we are a people on the move, and that's always been the story of God's people, uh, from Abram all the way to Jesus. So we packed up, and we carried stuff, and then we moved over here. Next slide. There's Dan carrying the cross. <laughs> Tegan carrying Hazel. And we packed up. Next slide. And started walking through the streets. I think there's a picture of John Voth in there. I'm sorry about that. Let's go next slide. Um, <laughs> kids carrying uh, the carpets. Going down to Hastings through Oppenheimer. We started arriving here. We got in the big room. Let's just stop here. And I love this moment as, as we, you know, gathered around kind of an unset up table, bins in the middle and rugs, and we reminded ourselves that church is always the work of the people. And uh, we just kind of got here. And then there was this beautiful moment next. so good. It's good to remember that Sunday. It was such a good Sunday, move Sunday. And I think in, in a strange irony, we find ourselves on another move Sunday today. Now, don't worry, we've got a lease signed. We're not going anywhere. We're staying at the Japanese hall and really gratefully uh, staying here. But uh, I want to look in scripture with you and consider ways that this might too be a move Sunday. I'd like to pray out of Ephesians 1, and then we'll 
we'll get going. This is Ephesians 1.17. This is one of Paul's prayers. And he says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. And I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people, and his his incomparably great power for those who believe. We pray today, we join in on that prayer, God, and we ask for a spirit of revelation that we could see that you'd move veils for us to see right. Pray that you would make this place illuminated, that you'd bring your light. We ask it uh, boldly, humbly, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's go uh, to Colossians 1 together. I encourage you to go there. There's a chair Bible beside you or if you have an app. But let's go uh, together to uh, Scripture, to what for, for um, you know, many would say this is one of the most dense Christocentric passages, one of the most dense Jesus-centered passages you could find in all of the New Testament. And so we're just going to do a quick flyover, no problem. Um, but it, it's, it's a, just a fascinating piece of Scripture, it really one of the, like the mountaintops of the Bible. This is Colossians 1.15. And what we see Paul doing here is he's painting a portrait of Jesus. He's, he says this, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and un- invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And what Paul's wanting to do, he's going to just keep plowing here, but what he wants for his readers is to see the glory and the beauty of Jesus. In so many words, he's saying, see him, see him, see that he's first and that he's supreme and that he's glorious and he's before all, he's in all, all things are holding together. See him, see him, that all things were made by him and for him. See that Jesus is always better than you know. He keeps going throughout chapter one and in in verse 26, um, he's starting to unpack this. He's saying, this is the mystery of Christ. Verse 26, he says, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles, among everybody gets in on this, the glorious riches of this mystery. What's the mystery? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now let's not fly over this too quickly. He's saying there's, there's a mystery that the ages have been waiting to be unfolded. And he's saying it's being unfolded in real time before you. Everyone gets in on it. And the mystery is Christ in you, which is the hope of glory. Now, it's this Christ that Paul has just been proclaiming to them. The Christ that who is before all, all things are for him, he's glorious, he's beautiful. It's this Christ, he's saying, that can come and live on the inside of a person. So you, you, you see why Paul gets so animated here. It's this Christ who lived, died, was crucified, resurrected, ascended, 
who sent his very spirit now to live on the inside of people and to do the same things he's always done in and through them. So this Christ, the mystery is that this Christ coming into a person's life to continue to do what he's done, to save, to heal, to welcome, to confront, to befriend, to deliver, to forgive sin, to tear down systemic racism. This Christ living on the inside of a person, doing the same stuff in them and through them. And he keeps going. Uh, Verse 28, he says, he is the one we proclaim. We just keep making it all about him. See him, elevate him, we proclaim him. And in so many words, he's saying, put him in the middle of your life, put him in the middle, and the rest stops spinning in incoherence comes into focus. Find him and you found it all. You found the treasure of life. It's going to take you a lifetime to unpack that treasure chest. He, he says uh, here that in him are all the riches of wisdom and knowledge. That's chapter 2 verse 3. So let's just come up for air there and pause. These are startling, bold claims, offensive to some, maybe offensive to some of us. But let's at least be clear on what he is claiming here. In, in, in many ways, it's like what Pascal said. Jesus is the center of all, the object of all. Whoever does not know him knows nothing aright, either of the world or of himself. So very bold claims. If we were to summarize Colossians 1 and the first bit of 2, it would be this. There is the claim. There is an unfolding, glorious mystery that consists of this. It's all about Jesus. He's better than you know. The essence of it is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And this stuff is inexhaustible. It's an unfolding mystery. Now, I hesitate to do this, but I'm gonna do it anyways. A couple weeks ago, a friend shared with me a mystery. And that is a mystery about the parking app. Now, you know, uh, parking at a meter, two hours usually, two hours max, but what do you, what do, you do when you're gonna be there long, longer than two hours? And so I've been one of those people who really get strategic. I'll start with coins, set a timer reminder, then I'll run out and I'll use the app. That will die, then I'll go back. And put my, so it's a, it's a hassle. My friend showed me this. I didn't believe him at first, that when you, when you go into the parking app, if you don't have it, I'm here to evangelize, get it. <laughs> and, you, and you just write in, in minutes, 115, 115 minutes. You let it go all the way down, you run out, you go back, you put in another 115, and it lets you do it. Now, if you know the parking app, you know if you put two hours in, it expires, you go and try and renew, what happens? Can't. But a mystery has been unfolded. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know why it works, or how it works, I didn't believe it. I've tried it, it works. I'm so happy to pass that on to you this morning. But here's the strange thing. It's a mystery that's been unfolded that I've gotten really animated about and want to tell people about. And in certain conversations, parking is nowhere related to what we're talking about, and I'll find a way to segue, right? Whether, you know, uh, Harvey, Irma, did you also know about the parking app? It's amazing. One, one, five. You just put it in there. 
But that's what we do when, when there is an unfolding mystery that we come in on and get to start participating in. You get fascinated by it, even if it's as dumb as a parking app, and then you start sharing your fascination. So watch what Paul does now as he's painted this portrait that's always been about Jesus. He's better than you know. In him are all the uh, treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and this stuff is inexhaustible. Verse 6 in chapter 2. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Can you hear in these words a trajectory? Can you hear the, the movement in here? This is a call to move forward in the direction that you've already begun. Wherever you're at, there's always more than this. So continue to live your lives in him. Keep moving, keep going deeper, being built up, growing strength, overflowing in thanks. In many ways, it's like it's riding a bike. Unless you're moving forward, you're falling off. You have to move forward, keep going. If you don't move forward, you lose momentum, and off you go. And you may be saying right away, yeah, no. What about the, those kinds of people at red lights? You know, they're on fixed gear, and they just, they're able to stall. They're, Lance, they're not moving forward. They're stalling. They're balancing. To which I would say, this is my metaphor. There's no fixies in my metaphor. No one's stalling, okay? There's no stalling. You can't stall in life. You maybe wait, but that's it. Different metaphor. Let's try an ocean metaphor. Now, it is, it is safe to say, with the ocean, there's always more than this. The ocean covers 70% of the planet's surface. It drives weather, regulates temperature. I mean, the last three weeks, we have, uh, and our neighbors to the south particularly, have been terrorized and flattened by just the sheer power of the ocean. Ultimately, it supports all living organisms, and throughout history, the ocean has been a vital source of sustenance, transport, commerce, growth, inspiration, and yet for all our reliance on the ocean, about 95% of this realm remains unexplored, unseen by human eyes. There's a little diagram here, National Aquarium. We've got 100% of the moon mapped, 100% of Mars mapped, and about 5% of our oceans. So there's always more to this with this massive body of water. There's more beauty and power. And, and there's, there's also more species inhabiting it. This is wild stuff, like really deep ocean species. I want to show you a few pictures. There's things like this. This is not CG. This is, this is actual next. Amazing. Next. No, that one's fake. I just put that one in there. <laughs> That, that is not a, that's not a species. <laughs> just, just a little joke. Okay, next. But that's real. You know, this, the ocean, the deep ocean, there's stuff. There are, we're still discovering. We don't know what's down there. 5% we know, and yet we rely 
on this mystery. And hopefully, hopefully this summer, you waded into that mystery. And you got to spend some time. That's one of the, the, the enormous gifts of living in this city, is it not? The proximity to that thing. And this summer, it was fun to get to watch my kids explore and, and to join them in participating in the mystery of the ocean, watching them learn how to skimboard. It's amazing. Did some boating. I didn't surf, but people can do that. Uh, <laughs> just, there's just a, you know, playing frisbee in, in, in the ocean. Fishing, floating. I don't know what, the, what it's called when you just go into the ocean with really big waves and you let them hit you and that, you know. <laughs> there's so many ways to enter into and participate in the mystery. And one of the fun things is seeing Eva our girl who's really into snorkeling and looking underwater and seeing, beholding, what's under the surface. And she, she asked her mom, Amy, I want you to do it with me. And so Amy had to get a set of goggles. Um, <laughs> I mostly just wanted to put that picture up on the screen. But uh, she had to get a, a, a set of her own, her own mask to explore. Here's the whole point. I mean, I don't, I don't think there's many people. I was going to say no one. Very few who, who've seen the ocean, who've experienced it, and then would receive an invitation at a, to a day at the beach, would reply with, I'm good. Seen it. Already, I actually was there once. Nobody says that. <laughs> I went there once. So can you hear how foreign overfamiliarity is when it comes to things like the mystery of the ocean? Can you hear how just bizarrely inappropriate smugness is when it comes to the mystery of an ocean? Colossians 2.6, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, wade in, get in, dive in, splash in. Live your whole lives in him. Immersion, rooted, built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. So this is the call to further exploration and fascination. We could call this then the possibilities of enchantment. Possibilities of enchantment. But Paul keeps going, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. So at first he's saying, see Christ, see him, his beauty, his glory. Now he's saying, also, see to it that you don't get, you don't get taken captive, that your fascination shrinks that your hunger for exploration dwindles. See to it that your devotion doesn't get diverted, that your confidence in Christ does not crumble. Now, why is he saying that? Well, because it needs to be said. Now, when we're talking about exploring the mystery of an ocean, it really doesn't need to be said. There aren't big forces in the world working to keep you away from the ocean other than one's own laziness, perhaps. There's the pressures to stay inland or like a pervasive cultural suspicion 
around large bodies of water. That's not a thing. And we wouldn't say ever that we're at a time in history where the average person in the West finds it difficult to accept the notion of oceanic reality. We wouldn't say that. There's not forces really actively working, but Paul's saying there are forces at work in the world. This devotion, this fascination for Jesus always happens in contested places. Forces that seek to divide and undermine and crumble your confidence in an unseen reality. And so he's, in so many words, also saying then, see the possibilities for disenchantment. See it. Susanna Clark's got a fairy tale called Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. And she talks about this rediscovery of magic in England in the 19th century. And in the beginning of the tale, magic has pretty much all vanished from England. It remains as part of English folklore, like the story of King Arthur. But no one has actually practiced or seen magic in many, many years. But nevertheless, there still are men who are called magicians. And they do so in spite of the fact that not one of them has ever performed a trick. She says, not one of these magicians had ever cast the smallest spell, nor by magic caused one leaf to tremble upon a tree, made one mote of dust to alter its course, or changed a single hair upon anyone's head, but this one, with this one minor reservation, they enjoyed a reputation as some of the wisest and most magical gentlemen in Yorkshire. These magicians, they spent their days in lengthy arguments about theoretical magic. They debated the use of this spell over that, nitpicking the details of magic's history. They'd meet once a month and read long, dull papers to one another. The idea of actually practicing this stuff was foreign. But then Mr. Norell shows up, and he casts a spell that, that makes all the statues in Yorkshire's cathedral come to life. These statues come to life shouting, singing, telling stories about the deaths of the men and women whose images they bore. And the magicians of Yorkshire were speechless. The world was far different than they believed. Now, in many ways, we know this story as well, because this is our story, the sense that magic has been drained out of the world. It's kind of a fine subset for those who are into it, but it's outdated, it's myth. Uh, philosopher Charles Taylor calls this the age of disenchantment. And disenchantment is a world that's been drained of magic, a sense of supernatural, of God, of transcendence. A disenchanted world is a material world where what you see is all you get. Now, I don't know if you've had this experience, but I've had it a lot, where maybe you're out for coffee with someone, you meet a close friend or a family member, they're a follower of Jesus, and they're very excited to tell you a story of some God activity in their life, maybe an answered prayer. And you hear them, and you see their excitement, and there's this thing in you goes, yeah, but, like, they're... I don't think they see, but there's many ways that could have been answered, and they're just attributing that to God. Kind of a, ah, oh, yeah, cool. I'm, uh, it's awesome that God answered your prayer. I don't know if you've 
experience that, yeah, but, but it's a deeply ingrained posture, almost an attitude toward the world that is immediately suspicious. Filters go up. You're like, oh, yeah, they're just kind of one of those, like, really fanatic, kind of way too into this stuff. Any story of, like, a well-timed miracle, you want to say, yeah, but on the other hand, or have you considered? It could be very suspicious even of religious language. And I react to the suggestion of a miracle or maybe even just thoughts about God or the transcendent with skepticism and sometimes cynicism. Why? Because it's my default setting because I have been completely shaped in the age of disenchantment that looks to poke holes in things, that has a built-in programmed, when it comes to transcendence, both a hunger for it and yet the desire to cut it off at the knees and say, yeah, no. I'm programmed to expect that the world is what I see, touch, measure, and any thought that goes against this, I resist. I'm programmed. And some of the most, I, I think some of the, <laughs> the saddest people are those who would say I'm a Christian and I'm caught in disenchantment. You're like a, a, a magician of Yorkshire. Who, I know how to talk about it. I love magic. I go to conferences on magic. I've never really seen it. I don't do it. Love the idea. Can't quite have a lot of confidence that it's more than just a fairy tale. And so those in the age of disenchantment, Charles Taylor would say they're always haunted. Always haunted that there's more than this. And I want to look at the story here that we've, we've looked at many times as a church, and I hesitated bringing that up again, but I, I have really sensed that there's a word here for our church, and so I want to go back to Luke 24. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I encourage you this week to uh, carve some time and spend some time in Luke 24. This is the, the road to Emmaus, which again, we've looked at many times, but something I, I want to point out, and then we'll walk through, but there's this story has five acts, okay? And, and I'll just name them and we'll walk through them. The, the first act is the road, the story, the table, the heart, and the city. So the first act on the road, we see these two people. We don't know for sure who they are. One of them's Cleopas. We don't know who the other person is. All we know is that they're leaving Jerusalem and they're walking toward the village of Emmaus. They're leaving the holy city, and they're discussing their fears and their disappointments. And Jesus has just been tried and executed, and they are left with the embers of a dying movement. These two are walking away because they're done with the movement. And Jesus goes and finds them. They don't recognize it's Jesus. I don't, I don't know, but that's part of the mystery of the story. Something about his, his resurrected body. They don't perceive, they don't see him. And what does Jesus do? Well, he doesn't say uh, wrong way. He doesn't actually say, you may not know the Greek word for repentance is metanoia, which means turn around. Doesn't do any of that. He comes with curiosity. He hears comp there's their complaints, their, their disappointments. 
He sees the deconstruction of their faith. And this is really important to how you image God, how you imagine God to be. See, Jesus walks the wrong way with people. Jesus walks the night road. He's the clandestine God who hides in the rubble of a deconstructed faith. He puts himself in the shadows of your sorrows. And he comes with curiosity. And, and, and they say this remarkable thing where they said, we had hoped. We had hoped that this Jesus would set things right. We put our confidence in this Jesus. And look what's happened to him. He's, he's been executed. He's dead. There's rumors of resurrection. But that's it. There's rumors. We had hoped. And they had very specific kind of hopes very dialed expectations. They hoped that in Jesus, Jesus would restore the kingdom of Israel. Their hope was more or less about us. And their hope was way too tiny. It's way too small. The belief system that they had developed about Jesus, the belief system about how he was and what he would do was primarily nationalistic, and here's the thing, that hope wasn't going to be ever going to be something that Jesus was going to fill. It was just too tiny. Now see this, the thing they're walking out on isn't something Jesus is trying to talk them back into. He's walking, he's walking out with them. He's leaving too. He's like, I'm not into this nationalistic vision either. And he asks more questions, and he opens space, and he gives them permission to leave Jerusalem, permission to vent and to grieve and to question and to be drained of hope all the way down. This is important to see because authentic love grants permission to walk away. Authentic love says you can take a detour. Authentic love says you're free to make a wrong choice. Why? Because authentic love is secure and it does not control. This is the kind of love Jesus walks with people. He is not trying to control you. He gives you permission. You are so free to leave. And these disciples left. They left the old faith structure. They left the gathered fellowship of the church. And I wonder if there's some of us here who've been hanging around Jerusalem just for too long. We have not dared to be honest enough about how our faith is crumbled, about how much doubt we secretly hold, and how we too walk the night roads saying to ourselves things like, God's not here, God does not see me, God does not intervene, and we've nursed a growing suspicion toward the Almighty. And if you were honest, you'd say, I've been forcing it. See, leaving a faith system or a denomination or a version of faith or your parents' faith or your young adult faith or your camp faith or, or leaving the thing that used to work but no longer works, these are not things Jesus tries to talk people back into. He does not say, hold on to that. And I know it's Startup Sunday, but maybe for some of us this might be our last Sunday in church. It might be our last Sunday in church for a while. 
And I say that for a couple of reasons. I say that because letting something die is really important so that it can live. You need an ending to have a beginning. And if your faith has, has grown with so much disenchantment, if it's, if it's just on life support, man, pull the plug. Pull the plug. Leave, move on. If all you have is disenchantment, don't defend it. And I say that, <laughs> I thought of this quote, Philip Dick, K. Dick, reality is that which when you stop believing it doesn't go away. And so, so often what looks like walking away from God is actually a collision course with God. And what may feel like the end of your faith is often the birth pangs of a new one. And sometimes old systems become concrete enclosures that need to break. Sometimes you need to get out and like God said to the Egyptians, let my people go. I want to meet them in the wild. And I wonder if some of us need to meet God in the wild. We, we need to risk death and resurrection. And I say this with confidence because this is what Jesus does. He is secure. He's full of love. He finds people he does not control. He is full of a love that pursues and walks with people. And, and ours in church, my hope is that we can be a church. I think we are this kind of church that walks with people on the night road to Emmaus. And so if, if you would have us, we want to walk with you and allow Jesus to open up space, to fully vent, to grieve, to deconstruct all the way down. But please note, that's the first act of the story. They continue walking along, and it says that Jesus opens the scriptures to them, telling them the whole Old Testament concerning himself. Now, we don't know how long that took. Would have loved to eavesdrop on that conversation. He opens the scriptures to them and kind of does what Paul does. they like, oh, it's always been about Jesus. He is the center. He's both God's map and God's treasure. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing it. I'm getting it. Often we're restored by being restoried. And you know this experience if you've been to the theater recently. I was just... Got to see Winter's Tale, went to see Caitlin Williams, and it was just so amazing. And it, you may know Shakespeare wrote this at the end of his life, it was one of the later ones, and so he just kind of went at it. The first couple minutes are just amazing. He th everything bad that could happen, happens, right? Those of you who know this, people are dying, they're estranged. Leonis, is that how you say it? Leon, hey, oh, hi, Caitlin. Yeah, Leontes, um, right? His heart is filled with suspicion, loses his wife, son. Everything bad that could happen happens. And then the second act is this joyful story of redemption. And th there's this moment of redemption where the statue comes to life, and I'm looking around at people beside me, and they're weeping. We're at Bart on the Beach, in Vancouver, a city of disenchantment, and people are weeping. Why? Because they're getting restoried. They're being restored in the midst of a story. They're going, this is happening to Leontes. Might it happen to me that I could know redemption, that some of my broken relationships could be mended? 
might this happen to me? This is what Jesus does to people. He draws them into his story of renewal and redemption, and we get restoried. Might it happen to me? Jesus does an interesting thing. I don't have any comment on why. I'm just going to make note of this happens in the text. But he pretends to keep going. There's a little fake out. So if, tells them the story and then pretends to keep walking. And they say, no, 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 please. You know, come with us. Come to our home. My, own, my latest idea of why he kept walking was just kind of like a little signal that there's more. We're still going here. So he ends up at their table. And Jesus is at their table in their home. They could not have scripted this. Jesus breaks bread, and somehow in the breaking of that bread, they see him. Lots of comment on what this could mean. I just, I, th- I, think, it's, I think it's pretty incredible that where Jesus is found is in brokenness. It's in the pulling apart and the fray. Maybe it was because he was so accustomed to being at the table, feasting and partying with people, that when he was finally at the table, they're like, oh, it was him doing what he always does. We don't know. It's a mystery. And the result then, after this, is they say to themselves, were not our hearts burning within us when he talked to us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Like, they're surprised it's happened to them. Did, that, did it happen to you too? Was your heart not like inflamed? Mine was out. It felt extinguished. And there was a flicker of new faith. Did that happen to you? See, it's through encounter. It's through encounter that movement happens. The last part of the story is the city. It says, they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. They found the others. And this is what they said. It's true. The Lord has risen. Now, I think this is phenomenal. It's these two. It's these two who are the ones who start going out and leading the movement. It's these two who are on the road who said, we had hoped, we're done, we're leaving, we're on our way out. It's these two who become, their their life now centered on Jesus, now is propelled outwards, out of themselves for others. They got up and they returned. What are they doing? What are they doing? The first ones who were entrusted with this good news are, are the, those who move from disenchantment to reenchantment. And this is how the gospel always moves by fascination. So, artisan church, I think this is the word for us. It's really simple. There's five acts to the story. It's more than the road. There's more than this. Now, many of us have found each other out on the road to Emmaus. And there is a beautiful community that has been formed on the road to Emmaus. There is a beautiful, gifted, amazing community here where we have encountered what many would say is a safe place to doubt. Or as in church, we have done well in walking and making space for the clandestine God to walk in our midst and to draw out questions and cynicism and doubt. But church, we are not a community 
that is setting up on the road. We're not resting here. We're not making our bed in deconstruction and disappointment. We are a church that follows Jesus, which means we move from the road into the story, the table, the heart, and the city. There is permission to leave old faith structures. There's permission to vent and to doubt. And there's permission to relearn the story again and permission to, 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 to find out that Jesus is always better than I knew and permission to be surprised even to yourself that your heart is set aflame in astonishment at his greatness and his holiness and his kindness and his nearness and there's a permission to be included at the table where your table suddenly becomes his table and there's permission in the breaking of the bread to recognize Jesus that he's with you, that he's real, that he's per- present There's permission to be completely out of sync with the spirit of the day, and that is to be aflame with passion for God. You have permission to love God wildly, and there's permission to wear the unfashionable garments of devotion, and there's permission to move out in fascination, sharing with people what you keep discovering to be real. There's permission for all of it, and all of it belongs, and it only works if all of it belongs. Jesus walks with people into disenchantment and leads them out. So artisan church, just as you received Christ as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. This is in many ways a move Sunday. But in a strange twist, I think we are invited to move again. And so the question I'd like to hold before us is, what are you willing to walk out on? What is it time to leave? The best news of all of this is that this is Jesus' work, that he wants this more than any of us does, and that he walks the road to Emmaus, to find those shut down in disenchantment and lead them out, but he also walks the road of Alexander and Maine and Boundary and Berard and King Ed and East Pender and Hastings and Robson. He walks those roads too. And so we are a church then that organizes around him and follows him and and says, what kind of arson is he gonna do this time in setting people's hearts aflame? God. Last word, and then we'll pray. The last word has to go to Mary Oliver, just because I love her. But she says, when it's over, I want to say all my life I was a bride married to amazement. I don't want to end up simply having visited this world. <laughs>